Hi, and welcome back to the SB Nation College Football Recruiting Podcast. This is Bud Elliott, the National Recruiting Director for SB Nation. Uh, we call it the College Football Recruiting Podcast because, well, all the creative names were taken and nobody thought to take the uh, the obvious SEO play, and uh, so we did that. Every week I start out and I review some of the, the best commitments of the week just so people who don't follow recruiting as a national entity, maybe more as an extension of their team, can get an idea of what's gone down in recruiting. So uh, open it up. Over the weekend, Florida State landed uh, five-star cornerback Stanford Samuels III. Obviously, a Florida State legacy. His dad played uh, for the Knowles in, in quite a while in the CFL and is you know, one of the better high school coaches down there in South Florida. Uh, Florida landed Elijah Blades, one of the top cornerbacks in the country, out of California. So they go out to the West Coast and, and get a stud. Uh, Oregon actually landed uh, Demidor Lenore, uh, who is a, a very good corner as well. Three top corners this week off the board. That's been interesting to see. And uh, Santino Marshall, a linebacker out of IMG Academy. Many people thought he might have gone to Ole Many people think he might might be going to Ole Miss, uh, but ended up committing to Texas A&M. So that's a uh, that's a strong get for the Aggies. That's all all the blue chip commits I'm going to review for this week. So let, let's get on to uh, what I wrote about this week. And I'm going to go through this fairly quickly because I took two days off this week. I actually golfed on Tuesday and I fished yesterday. And uh, you know, can't take a whole lot of vacation time during the football season. So you, if you don't if you don't use it, you kind of lose it. Uh, I wrote about camps and whether teams doing satellite camps, not doing satellite camps, the effect they were having and, uh, and how much success they were having. So uh, I took a look and uh, Florida State, you know, I, I was up at, at their camp. Uh, Jimbo Fisher actually used the quote, uh, we're not, we're, uh, we're satelliting here in Tallahassee. And, you know, if you're a school that's had a bunch of success, maybe you can not do satellite camps. I think other schools probably do need to do satellite camps, particularly schools that are not in the Power Five. Uh, so I took to, I took a look at what uh, Florida State's done, what Michigan's done. They landed uh, two elite players, a defensive tackle in the class of 2017 and a, uh, a defensive back in the class of 2018, both out of Georgia. So perhaps we're seeing some success there from Jim Harbaugh. Uh, and uh, and then Tennessee had uh, Orange Carpet Day or Orange Carpet Weekend. We've seen it reported as different things. They ended up landing eight commitments, which was extremely impressive for them on the weekend, uh, and that led me into the, the discussion of fast starts and early college football recruiting rankings. And look, I'm a big proponent of, of not paying a whole lot of attention to early college football recruiting rankings because they're, they're incomplete and they're imperfect. Now, you can trust that most of the guys rated as five stars this early on are indeed that. They're, they're studs. And most of the guys rated as four stars, if, if a recruiting service is willing to go out on a limb this early and put a four-star tag on a kid, that that's fair, and, and that, that that's probably accurate. Now, there will be some movement, of course, in those ranks, but where you really see sort of the inconsistency early on uh, is with the, the three-star types. And uh, with those, a lot of times a kid gets a three-star rating because the service really has not seen him enough to properly evaluate him. And and he could be, he could be a three-star, sure, but there's a, a, a decent chance some of these kids are going to get bumped up to four stars, uh, just with more recruiting opportunities for these services to see them. I think if you wanted to have the most accurate uh, rate rankings or ratings or what have you, you'd probably wait more uh, and do them later in the year. 
But look, fans of these subscription service sites, they want to know uh, that how good the players that they're signing are. And so you you got to put out these rings because it's a for-profit business. You, you got to you know you got to make your customers happy. So with that, I took a look this week at at what schools were having fast starts and whether the fast starts were a result of of, of quantity or quality. And and, and I titled it uh, you know why early recruiting rankings are are deceptive by nature. So seven teams that I identified here uh, so far are really high in the recruiting rankings, but maybe because more quantity than quality. And that would be Tennessee. Uh, only three of their 18 commitments so far are blue chips. Uh, Texas A&M, only four of their 14. Arizona State, three of 18. Mississippi State seems to be kind of an annual team on this list. I, I write this column annually because it, it gets traffic and, and people get all, all excited over it. Uh, two of 16. Northwestern, zero of 16. South Carolina, one of 16 and Oklahoma State, 1 of 16. And and the reason why there's an issue here uh, is because the actual recruiting team ranking formula is not truly made to account for such a a great difference in the number of commits. It it works a lot better when you're you're comparing apples to apples. Most teams are going to have somewhere around 20 commits. Sure, somebody might have 26, and somebody might have 17, but there's not a whole lot. But the formula works much better in that time frame and with that sample set than it does when some teams only have three commits and other teams have 19. That's just too big of a gap. Uh, and and it, it, once teams all start to fill out their classes, then maybe it's time to start paying attention to recruiting rankings. Of course, look, I'm going to guess that, that Tennessee didn't just take seven three-star type commitments. My guess, and, and I, I think I, I know who, uh, is that that staff feels like some of those kids are better than their early three-star ranking. Otherwise, why would you take players who probably won't start for you based on that ranking and, and a Tennessee's roster this early in the cycle? There's no re- there's no need to get to start reaching for three-star type players this early on. So that, that's something to look at there, uh, certainly. But I don't pay a whole lot of attention to early recruiting rankings because of the, the problems that, that the sample set and the quantity present. Um, now... Some teams so far that do have 10 verbal commitments and at least half of them blue chips, which is the standard for winning a national title, half or more of your signees being blue chips, basically since the BCS era started. Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Florida State, Clemson. And then Michigan and LSU and North Carolina are are nipping at their heels and are also doing a great job. So just keep that in mind when looking at recruiting rankings. I'm reminded that in uh, in June of 2013, Kentucky actually ascended to the number one uh, overall recruiting class on Rivals.com. And uh, and I wrote back at the time that, look, this is just a great example of a, a formula that's not really made to judge the quality of a recruiting class this early on in the cycle. With that, let's, uh, let's get to some questions. First, from uh, Red Cup Rebellion, uh, something on a lot of old... Old, old uh, Miss fans' minds is how an NCAA investigation can change when a signing class. Uh, can it and how? Thanks, bud. Well, I appreciate the question, certainly. And uh, yeah, it, it definitely can because if I'm a recruiter, I'm going to tell these kids that the NCAA is going to hammer Old Miss. And whether or not that's true is not quite as important as the perception. Uh, you know, like I say, perception is reality at times. Especially if this thing drags out. I mean, if this thing starts going, 
uh, and and last through the end of the year, past the recruiting class, past the time to sign, past the time these guys enroll early. Absolutely, that uncertainty, that doubt, you can present that and say, hey, you know why? Why would you go to some place that might not be able to play in a bowl, that might not have adequate depth, that might not be able to compete for for championships? I, mean, I know Ole Miss hasn't won anything, but you know they've been a pretty good team over the last couple of years, thanks to their better recruiting. It certainly can impact a class. Now, if you're Ole Miss, I think you have to be proactive here, and you have to anticipate whether the NCAA will accept your self-imposed penalties and how much additional, if any, scholarship sanctions will be levied against you, and and consider and and when they'll come. So, if you're Ole Miss, maybe you want to take a a very big class, and and Miami did this under Al Golden, in my opinion. They took a class, and some of those kids maybe weren't elite-level starter types, but they realized that the sanctions coming were going to vastly impact their depth, and so you had to load up on bodies so that you had adequate depth. If you don't have good depth, not only does it affect you on game day, but it also affects how you practice, how you prepare, and it really affects you when you have injuries. So you can't have good practices if you don't have that depth. So if Ole Miss anticipates, and here's where it has to be honest with itself, uh, if it anticipates that more sanctions are going to come, in addition to the the, the ones they already uh, self-imposed in that uh, response to the notice of allegations, uh, then maybe they'll take a very large class in order to um, in order to load up and, and make sure they have that depth. I, I guess we'll just have to see on that. Next question is, uh, where do the freshly released Baylor commits end up? Uh, is there a precedent for? Um, June recruiting bonanza like this. Well, I, you know, I don't know if I want to use the term bonanza here. Uh, that sort of downplays what what happened at Baylor and makes this more of a recruiting issue. Certainly, there are a lot bigger issues at Baylor. I I don't know where the, uh, the those players will sign. Um, I know I did a story for SB Nation and, and talked to uh, J.P. Urquidez's family, the, uh, the four star tackle there who asked for his release and was granted his release last night, according to a report by ESPN.com. Uh, and they said, look, they aren't even thinking about that right now. And that was what, two, three weeks ago, I guess, when, when I did the story. Maybe I'll follow up with him and, and figure out where they're going. I, I don't know where they're going. Uh, has there ever been a, a situation where a lot of elite-level recruits were suddenly available on the market uh, this late in the cycle? Yeah, I, I think that they're, the, the, the recruiting frenzy after the Penn State scandal happened is somewhat analogous in that you know the recruits could go somewhere else, but also current players on Penn State were released from from their scholarships, if you, if you recall, and, and se- several of them did transfer. Uh, do staffs have well-defined recruiting roles? If so, what are they? Uh, closer, relationship builder, etc. You know that I think that they have varying qualities, and some are better at certain things than others, certainly. Um, But there's not typically a designated closer and a designated relationship builder, and the reason for that uh, is because teams recruit by area, typically, right? And what that means is, let's say, uh, you know, let's say you have Texas. Somebody's going to have Houston, somebody's going to have Dallas, and and probably maybe two guys at, at, at the Metroplex. Um, somebody's going to have San Antonio, another person's going to have other areas of the state. You can't have one guy who's just a full relationship builder because if you do, it, it 
he, he'd be, just be stretched way too thin. So everybody has to be decent at making relationships, creating relationships, identifying the decision maker, certainly. Uh, you know, is it mom? Is it dad? Is it a brother, an uncle, a high school coach? What have you. Uh, and then closer to the end of the cycle where you do the in-home visits and when you do the on-campus visits, maybe you take the, the area coach and then also his position coach and potentially a third coach. And if that third coach is a guy who's very charismatic, who's a real salesman, a real closer, maybe he can do that. But uh, due to the nature of the area recruiting styles that pretty much all teams practice, like no coach just recruits his position. He actually recruits an area. Uh, because otherwise it just wouldn't work. Um, you really don't have those defined roles like that. That's, that's a good question. I appreciate that. Uh, the top three defensive players in Florida or, or a three-star who should be ranked higher. Let me see. Now, the, the key question here is, are you counting the IMG kids? Because the IMG kids are not really from Florida, most of them, right? Most of them are out-of-state kids who have transferred in. So with that, it's you kind of got to be careful. I think, well, I, I, yeah, I guess we can count count the IMG kids. Two four seven Sports has it as Dylan Moses, who's a linebacker at IMG, Sean Wade, who's the corner at Trinity Christian, and Stanford Samuel's the third, who's the corner at Flanagan. Now, that's a pretty good list. Uh, Josh Kando, the defensive end at IMG, who's a Maryland commit, is is fourth on that list. Isaiah Pryor's next, Jarius Parks, uh, all, all that, all those guys. That's a pretty good list. If, if you wanted to put somebody else in, I, I guess you could put in Kando. Um, I'm not totally convinced that Moses is the far and away best defender in, in, in the state. I want to see continued growth from him. I think he's an excellent player, but he's also a guy who's been on our radar for so long. And uh, uh, the other question was, who's a three-star in Florida, who's underrated? I, I would have said Carmani Green, a, a three-star uh, receiver who plays for Miami Central. Uh, I've been I've been promoting him on Twitter a lot because I saw him at the South Florida Express tryouts back in, I guess January, or February, whenever that was. And I thought this kid is a lot better than uh, than his re- recruiting ranking and then his offer list. But since then, he's added quite a few offers. Um, I think DeAndre Wilder is, is a pretty good player there at, a, at a Carroll City, although he's, I think, still rated as, as a four-star. I'm, I'm looking here for somebody who's currently rated as a three-star. Like I mentioned, I really don't care about the recruiting rankings, you know, this early in the cycle. Um, but uh, Sean Davis, the, the, the corner out of Southridge, isn't bad at all down there in Miami. Uh I don't know. That's that's a good question. I, I gotta I gotta think about that. Somebody, uh, there's a corner named Amir Speed, right, who goes to Sandalwood at Jacksonville, and I think he's rated as uh, like not inside the top 75 in the class in Florida. I think he's probably better than that. And then Darian Felix is a a running back slash slot receiver who is just totally electric. Goes to Fort Myers High School, and I think he's not also not in the top 75 in Florida currently, uh, but is a player who I, I think certainly should be. All right. Uh, do any recruits have opinions on the Brexit? Uh, as you know, the UK voted to leave the European Union uh, in a 52-48 very, very close vote last night. Um, I've not seen any recruit tweet any opinions on the Brexit. Now, they 
a lot of times they all have the same opinion on things, but so far uh, European politics and UK politics has not really come up on my Twitter timeline on which I follow quite a few recruits. Next question is, uh, how likely is another strong finish from the Longhorns? Well, I think it's uh, it's somewhat likely, uh, and it says, uh, was last year a trend or an anomaly? I think it, there, there are several factors here. Number one, how does Oklahoma do? Number two, uh, how does TCU do? And they might, If they have another excellent year, they can continue to battle <coughs> Texas and, and for some kids. Uh, and then how does A&M do? Probably the most important because A&M has, has the elite facilities there. There's a lot of uncertainty in Texas. I, I wrote about this back in, I think, March or April when I went to Dallas and I went to Houston. And most kids in Texas, most of these super elite kids that I was talking to, you know, your top 10, your top 20 type Texas kids, were giving me very much answers that indicated they were waiting to see what would happen with the Longhorns and with the Aggies, and they weren't going to jump on board early. Now, that's changed a little bit. The Aggies and the Longhorns both have a couple blue chip commitments, but for the most part, they're still waiting to see. So to answer this, I went and I looked up what is the Longhorns' uh, Vegas projected win total. And it's seven. And these are regular season wins, so obviously it doesn't count a bowl game. If Vegas is right, if Texas goes seven and five, will they be able to pull elite recruits in? I, I think some will certainly come because it's Texas and because they like Charlie Strong. But I think if, if the Longhorns are going to take another step forward in recruiting, then they're going to have to probably exceed that and, and maybe win eight or nine ballgames in the regular season. When you lose five, six, seven games, that just doesn't look good. Uh, and, and after a while, recruits, they, they stop buying in to whatever the coach is preaching. So something to watch there. It's certainly possible, but I do think Texas is going to need to show improvement on the field, and there's a good chance they will. Uh, who does the most with the least, and who does the least with the most? That's a good question. I'm going to say... The most with the least is probably the easiest answer here. Uh, Michigan State does a great job of scouting and developing uh, to their system. Now, are they recruiting at a national championship level? Do I believe they can win a title? No, because we've seen this basically since the dawn of the BCS. If you don't have a certain level of recruited talent, you're not hoisting that trophy. The same goes for TCU, which would be my other pick here. Uh, I think the, the Horned Frogs do a great job of scouting and developing and they've, they've started to sign some more elite talents as well. But they're not quite at that super level. I think Gary Patterson and Mark D'Antonio are excellent coaches, and, and they have a lot of program stability, which helps quite a bit. Who does the least with the most? Uh, well, to, to answer this, let's go look at who signed the best recruits from 2012 to 2015. I'm just going to go down the list here. Uh, Alabama was on top. Well, they've, they've done a whole lot. Uh, USC next, but then again, they've also had the, the, the crippling sanctions. They, they've only had 71 signees between the 2012 and 2015 classes. So I kind of want to exclude them because that, that's such a low number. I mean, Alabama, in comparison, over the, that four-year span, signed 101 kids compared to 71. Not really apples to apples there. Ohio State's done really well. Notre Dame's done really well. LSU's done well. FSU's done well. Uh, Michigan uh, did not do very well between 2012 and 2015, and as a result, they uh, they fired Brady Hoke and hired Jim Harbaugh, who had a pretty nice year one, and they're on the uptick. Uh, Auburn is actually brought in the eighth most talent over that four-year span, and you know they went to the national title game. 
but I think that people there are perhaps justifiably unhappy in some ways because they, they lost, uh, what, five games and in six games in, in the successive seasons after their national title game appearance. Texas obviously fired Mac Brown. Uh, we're in the process of seeing what Charlie, uh, what Charlie Strong can do. And, uh, yeah, sorry about that, uh, viewers. I was just talking with my hands. Uh, where was I? You got to get down here, I, I think, to um, Miami is, has brought in top 20-level talent, uh, but has, has certainly not had top 20-level results. They fired Al Golden <laughs> as a result of that and brought in Mark Richt. Um, you know, Florida, they, 2012 to 2015, not the best. They're top 15-level recruited talent. There's not one team that stands out right now as a team that just consistently signs top five classes and then blows it. Now, USC, if they keep doing it, after like post-sanctions era, then, then that certainly will fit the definition. But there's not really one who stands out above all the others. All right. Um, next question is, uh, does diminishing returns start when you stockpile too many elite quarterbacks. Clemson has Deshaun Watson, uh, K. Boogie, two of the top 17 QBs, and in the running for uh, the 2018 number one. Now, the 2018 number one is Trevor Lawrence, and I don't really don't think Clemson has much of a shot with him, but for the sake of argument, I'll, uh, I'll include that in this question. And the answer is uh, no. I don't think it has dim- diminishing returns necessarily in that they're, I don't think it has negative returns. You, you can't have too many good quarterbacks. If they get hurt, it just increases your depth uh, and the ability to replace them without having a huge drop-off. Now, the other aspect of diminishing returns is is the difference between having one, one, one elite quarterback and two compared to, let's say, three and four. Is that smaller? Yeah, of course. You know, because you, you, the chance that you're actually going to need that, that fourth or fifth quarterback is greatly reduced compared to your need for the number two quarterback. How big of an impact will Nebraska's 2017 recruiting in California have on the program? I, I think it could have a significant impact. I mean, Nebraska has, I would argue, been uh, been damaged by the move to the Big Ten. They're no longer uh, a, a threat at all in Texas, really, uh, or, or many of the Big 12 states. So they have to get talent somewhere, right? And Nebraska, over the last four classes, let's pull this up here. Uh, it says something that I have to scroll to, to get to Nebraska here. Nebraska, over the last four classes, has only signed 19% blue-chip players. So that, to me, that means one in five guys Nebraska has signed has been a four- or five-star. That's terrible. I mean, that nobody Nebraska could double that and still not be close to national championship level. It would basically have to triple it. That's not good enough. Only 17 four- and five-star players in four years? That's... That's not that's not going to compete in the Big Ten. Let's compare those numbers to some some teams that have signed big time signing classes. Ohio State, sixty nine again, sixty nine for seventeen. Michigan, fifty one, fifty one against seventeen. Penn State, even with the sanctions, had taken a very small twenty thirteen class of only seventeen kids, thirty for seventeen. So. You look at that, I mean, Maryland's having a resurgent recruiting time. Michigan State, you know, about about 30% more as well. 
look, Nebraska has to find talent somewhere, right? And doing it in California is better than trying to find it in your own backyard or, or trying to find it in some of the Big Ten states. And I think that's probably the takeaway here. Nebraska has not been able to compensate for the loss in Texas recruiting territory by adding Big Ten recruiting territory. So going out to California, if you can do it, Nebraska so far is, is a great move. Absolutely. All right. Uh, how has Washington managed to consistently pull in top 25 classes and turn those guys into the NFL, yet only win seven games each year? Well, where's Steve Sarkeesian right now? Because he was responsible for for most of those seven wins, and that's why he has the name Seven Win Sark. So you saw what he did at USC. I, I think you can argue that part of that was an underperformance based on him. Part of that was still lingering sanctions issues, but that's probably your answer. Uh, if you don't have faith in what Chris Peterson's doing, I'm, I'm not sure who you like because he's one of the finest coaches in college football. That segues well into our next question here. Does USC finish top five uh, in recruiting this year? Well, to answer this, I again went to their Vegas number because I think how you do on the field is going to have some impact on your recruiting. Vegas has USC winning seven and a half regular season games. So most likely results either seven and five or eight and four. If USC loses four or five ball games under Clay Helton, it could still sign an excellent class. But I think you also run the risk of potentially losing a lot of the luster and the, the new coach smell factor that we often see teams with new coaches get uh, in recruiting. That bump could go away if you do lose four or five ball games, particularly if they come in ugly fashion. So that'll be something to monitor uh, USC also has a very difficult early season schedule, and I'll be watching that closely. Right now, I would say no. USC will not sign a top five class, but I would say yes, they probably will sign a top ten class. All right, next one. Uh, how loaded will California be with QB recruits in the class of 2018? Um, really loaded. I mean, like, like usual. Uh, Matt Corral is a USC commit, obviously a stud. You got Jack Tuttle. Um, Adrian Martinez, um, uh, Cameron Rising. Uh, a lot of guys can really, really play. Do some states have a type? Uh, next question. Do some states have a type? Uh, like Texas seems to produce a bajillion tall, lean, fast dudes. Uh, I would say states do have a type, and I would actually disagree with the assertion that Texas produces a ton of tall, lean, fast dudes. In fact, in my experience, and I go to camps in all over the country in many different states, I find that Texas kids are actually much more physically developed than, say, Florida kids and kids in some parts of the rural south. Uh, I don't know if that's because Texas kids have, have access to nicer weight rooms or better school-provided nutrition or whatever it is. Uh, certainly the facilities in Texas compared to uh, let's say Florida or Louisiana or basically anywhere else in the South, uh, are, are much, much nicer. I mean, in Florida, kids are playing on fields with, with rocks and, and large patches of, of, of no grass, and, and many of them share the, share the same field. I mean, you go to Miami, you got teams playing, playing high school games on Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night on the same field because there's just not enough land, not enough fields. Uh, many of them are not in good condition. I think that team, teams do have a type. I find that Texas players have better fundamentals 
than kids from, let's say, Florida, right? Um, and I think that's probably because Texas invests a lot more money in coaches and in facilities and in training than Florida does. And so a lot of college coaches will tell you Texas recruits are actually closer to their ceiling than, say, recruits in poorer states who, who may have the ability to unlock more athletic potential once they get into a college nutrition program and a college weight program and and they receive college coaching. You know, in some states, they don't pay their teachers very much, and that is reflected somewhat in the quality of coaching. Uh, Texas is very, very organized uh, at the youth level, at the middle school level. They have middle school football, another thing we don't have in Florida, um, and, and at the high school level. And many times, kids in Pop Warner feed into the same middle school system that feeds into the same high school system. So they've been running the same system for 10, 12 years by the time they get to high school. Uh, and that's that's very important for continuity there in high school. As you know, Texas takes recruit or takes high school football very seriously. Um, but yeah, I do think that, that states have a type. I just disagree with your assertion that Texas has a bunch of tall, lean, fast dudes. I, I think they're much more, um, much bulkier than recruits in some other states. Uh, why do you wear hats like that? And this is referring to my big uh, Henschel uh, camp hat. Two reasons. Number one, I work outside a lot and I don't want to get skin cancer. Uh, when you're when you're here in Florida and you're traveling to Texas and you know, Georgia and Alabama and all the states with a lot of sun, it's just easier in case my, my sunscreen wears off to not get burnt like that. I also oftentimes wear one of those um, fishing style neck uh, sleeves, which which helps as well. Because I'm trying to work, I'm trying to do a job, and I don't want to catch, uh, don't want to catch skin cancer or or get really burnt and be uncomfortable when I catch the red eye home. The second reason here is that I want the recruits to recognize me and to know that hey, you know that's that's Bud Elliott. He's not going to screw me over. You know he, he's he'll probably help me out if, if a college coach asks him about me. You know he'll, he'll give an honest answer. He's not going to trash me. Uh, he's not going to take my quotes out of context or. Uh, do something unethical, and I want to have that consistent brand recognition from class to class. I want somebody who just signed to say, yeah, go talk to that dude. He's a good dude. He'll do you right. And so wearing the same outfit, I mean, I pretty much always wear the the same, I got a couple of them, red Espionation shirt and that red Henschel hat. I didn't start out with the intent to do that, but later on I I did just just start doing that, and it's it's helped quite a bit. in my opinion, I think people, does it matter if the kid knows my name all that much? No. It matters that he wants to talk to me. I get the story. I get I, I get the scoop. We get the information that he's comfortable, that he wants to shoot a video interview, that he wants to help us produce content that fans and readers will like. Uh, and so that's, I, I'd rather have them be able to recognize me, even if it's not the most fashionable thing. All right, uh, we're coming up here on the 30-minute mark. I appreciate you all sticking with us. Again, if you have some questions, uh, you can drop them in the comment section. We'll try to uh, to answer a few as I get through the pre-submitted questions here. Um, Really long question here. I'm going to read it in its entirety and then try to answer it. I'm always curious about why most of the better college ball recruits come from the south, west coast, warmer climates. I find the human migration from northern climates to the southern climates to be the laziest excuse for better players in the south. Otherwise, the best recruits would come from the corridor from Washington, D.C. through Boston. Is it harder for northern players to gain the extra recruiting stars 
due to their level of competition. FSU commit Alexander Marshall comes to mind. I feel as though it's, quote, relatively easily, or relatively easy to get a high rating uh, when you're from Florida, Alabama, Georgia, etc. Anyway, great job on the podcast and the email updates. I love your stuff. Well, I certainly appreciate that question, and I, I wish I had included your name with this when I copy-pasted it over to my, uh, my uh, show notes page. Well, I think there, this is a, a multifaceted question, and it's a good one. Maybe I'll write on this as well, but the short answer here, I think weather does does play a factor because, I mean, I, where I live today, it's it's 86 degrees right now. And it's probably going to be mid-70s come December. You can, you can practice and play outdoor sports year-round in the warmer climates. You can't do that, really, in, in the, the cold climates unless you have access to like an indoor practice facility, which many kids don't, at least not for individual work. Now, there are teams that they play spring football, which I know a lot of northern schools do not. But if they do, uh, you know they, they can get access to it maybe for a team activity, but not for individual training, not for individual work. And it's hard to do footwork drills in the snow. So compare all those months lost from cold weather climates versus warm weather climates, and you're probably looking at, I don't know, what, 30, 35% more potential practice time for kids in warm weather climates. I, I, I don't think that's that's too hard to say. And uh, your, your question also hit on the level of competition. Absolutely. The level of competition down south is, is much better. Out west, much better. Texas, much better. Um, than it is in the Northeast. I mean, you go to the Northeast, you see, I mean, very few elite prospects. Occasionally, you'll see one, and they stick out like a sore thumb because they're just dominating their competition. The kids up there are not as big, not as fast, oftentimes not as aggressive too. Like the the, the battles we see, even in these padless camps, are I think more intense down south than they are uh, up north, and that's not regionalism. It's just what I've observed doing this job. All right, um, here we go. Next question. Uh, the stuff I've always wondered about relates to how well recruiting matters versus player development versus tactics. I know recruiting matters the most. I agree. Uh, it certainly does. Guys like Gene Chizik and Larry Coker have national championship rings. Uh, Gary Patterson and Mark D'Antonio do not. So keep that in mind. Curious uh, if you could guess how much by considering the following scenarios. We know based on your numbers and everyone else's that Alabama's been the best recruiting team. If Saban and his staff are kidnapped by aliens and replaced by any other FBS staff, how much of a drop-off is there this year? I'd assume the top flight coaches used to dealing with top guys, Urban, Jimbo, etc., would probably do just as well and we'd never notice. If we brought in any D1 staff, be it from Clemson or Central Michigan, would all of them be able to do as well or almost as well? Is there a scenario where a staff couldn't get eight to nine wins every year, barring just horrible luck? If so, why? Well, I, I'm certainly sure there is a scenario where eventually a staff couldn't get eight to, eight to nine wins at Alabama. I mean, the, the, the scenario might be called Mike Shula, but that's unfair uh, because of what Saban has built there. And I think this question does a, a brilliant job of hitting on that. The infrastructure and processes that Saban has put in place would likely make that job kind of uh, you know, just turnkey for the next coach. It would probably take a, a while to screw that up. Now, certainly there are coaches out there who are not the best recruiters who probably would not be prepared to run a program 
with as many different responsibilities as Alabama, even though they have so many, uh, like you know, shadow coaching staff and and extra support staff and and, and assistants and whatnot, there's still a, a tremendous uh, need to deal with boosters and and TV and and all the other things that the, the, the demands on your time that come when you have a program like that. But no, I I think pretty much any staff could be put in Tuscaloosa right now and continue to win at least eight to nine games every year. Um, would they win national championships as often as Saban? That's hard to say. I, I think one of the brilliances of Saban is that he is so good at actually taking and capitalizing on the available resources and, and making use of them. You know, he says, I need, I need more money, but he doesn't just say it. He has an actual plan for how they're going to use it. Whether they have waterfalls in their locker room or, um, you know, redoing their locker rooms or adding more recruiting assistants or more video guys, what have you. Uh, he has brilliantly maximized his resources. And I think that's why some guys, I think, are much better at doing more with less. I don't know that Saban would be great at doing more with less. I do think he is probably the best guy you could possibly have at a program that will say yes to every possible request. All right, we are coming up on the 40-minute mark here. Let me check in to see if we have... Any, uh, any more questions on Facebook? All right. Um, no, looks like very few questions today. You guys have any questions before I uh, before I turn this thing off? Let me uh, let me see here. Pull up tweet that. No, it looks like we are. Uh, looks like we're good. Uh, certainly appreciate everybody watching. Again, the best chance to get your question answered live on air is to tweet it at SBN Recruiting. You can do so throughout the week. I typically favorite those, and uh, and then I go through my favorites when I'm putting together the show notes to figure out what questions I want to ask. And uh, guys, appreciate y'all watching, and uh, join you next time for the College Football Recruiting Podcast.